Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Caliber. This week, we're considering what makes a good economic franchise and how market conditions influence the long-term value of a company. With examples from Kate Spade to medical devices and the national grid, there's something for every investor in today's episode. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Bertrand Clique, who is a fund manager on the elite-rated Lazard Global Equity Franchise Fund. First of all, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Chris. Let's go straight into the fund itself and have a look at some of the, the holdings. You've, you've obviously got a very sort of eclectic mix of companies within the top 10, the likes of, you know, a luxury fashion holding company, a firm that makes slot machines in Las Vegas, and then High Street Pharmacy, eBay, a kidney dialysis company, Japanese security company, Spanish infrastructure firm. Um, maybe tell us, you know, what, what's the tenant runs through them? What what do you look for that all of these sort of various companies display? And maybe go into a, a bit of detail about one or two of them if you can. Yes, um, and it, it, it might seem uh, indeed quite eclectic at first sight uh, to see su- such a, a diverse uh, range of companies, but I think what they do have in common is what we call a source of economic franchise. Mm-hmm. And just to go back to the philosophy of what we're after and we want to deliver for investors, is really trying to find a way to minimize the risk of error around forecasting the future earnings and cash flows of our companies. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of that, in our view, is that it can um, enable us to be more assertive on valuation. So let me take an example. If you have a company where you know, the future is really uncertain, it might make 10 million pounds or 100 million pounds of profits in the next five years. But how do you ascribe a valuation to this? And, and, and how do you, um, you know, assess how this compares to the current share price and therefore your investment decision. So what we are looking for is those companies with a source of economic franchise and they can be a natural monopoly. So Ferrovial, you mentioned a Spanish listed business that owns a network of motorways in North America. So monopolistic situation, you know, really, really robust business. They can be businesses with scale uh, where the scale gives them an edge. So CVS Health has a large um, pharmacy benefit management business. So they buy in bulk um, from the big pharma companies on behalf of healthcare plans in the US. And the, the size and their ability to process um, this is, um, you know, gives them an edge. You can have network effects, probably eBay falls into that, um, where the, the wider adoption of a, a product or a service creates some, let's say, a virtuous circle. And these virtual cycles, in 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 a sense, be significant barriers to entry. They can have brands, tapestry. You mentioned, um, uh, you know, we think the the brand um, will um, compel the customers to pay a premium price for the product and derive high profitability, or switching costs. You know, when um, you know you you have to think about um, removing or changing a, a provider of, of, of a service, uh, you, you have to think about it twice because it's costly, it's potentially disruptive to your business and may actually not yield you know, much cost advantage for you. So that's what those companies have in common. They have this source of economic franchise, which we think will um, enable us to forecast their, their cash flows and profits more accurately. Uh, accurately, and the second thing they have in common is valuation. As, as you know, um, you know we're convinced that the price investors pay to invest in a company is a crucial success factor or risk, 
Uh, and we think that those companies um, you know, have been faced uh, with um, either, let's say, disruption from COVID in the case of motorways, where people were not about, you know, allowed freely to go about their business and therefore still recovering uh, from a traffic standpoint. Or Tapestry, where the company has uh, implemented or is in the process of implementing a very, very deep um, rationalization of its value chain management in order to deliver its product in the right quantity at the right time to the right audience, which means that uh, they won't have to discount and therefore the margins they get on every single product will be significantly improved. Did you want to go into a couple of, maybe an example of one to sort of talk us yes. through? from sort of A to Z perhaps? Yes, um, I think uh, Tapestry is a very good example. Um, Tapestry is an American listed company uh, known for a number of its brands. The most prominent of it is Coach. Mm -hmm. um, it owned as well Kate Spade and uh, the shoemaker Stuart Weitzman. Mm -hmm. um, and the opportunity arose for us to invest in Tapestry uh, when the company previous management certainly dropped the ball uh, and missed the rise of Michael Kors um, and the new management team um, set out on a journey to improve the operational performance of the business. Um, I think the poster child in the industry is probably Inditex, the owner of Zara. Mm -hmm. um, very, very nimble value chain, uh, very quick at product turnaround, um, really good at sensing uh, market trends and reflecting in, in the product offering. So the, the Tapestry was really on a journey, uh, and this journey um, was not only here to reestablish the growth of the business, but here um, very much reestablish the margin and the premium um, pricing that they used to enjoy, but had to compromise on through heavy discounting because of mismanagement of their value chain. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen, and that was the lesson from COVID, uh, was some sort of catalyst of history. Mm -hmm. um, COVID and the challenges it posed offered as well management the ability to implement change at extremely rapid pace. Mm -hmm. um, so a performance improvement plan that was supposed to take two and a half to three years was put in place within nine months. And so we're currently starting to really yield um, and see the benefit of, of this. Um, and that, that fits right down to the bottom line, a significant improvement in, in profits for the group. Um, obviously, the fund is, is global in nature and what there is over 41,000 is probably more than that now um, stocks globally to, to look at. How, how do you go about finding these gems that go into your portfolio? How do you cut that universe down firstly? And also in terms of when you look at these companies, do you look at them individually or do you look at the sector they operate in and try and evaluate who the competitors are? Is there consolidation? How, how do you go about identifying these types of companies? Yes, um, it's it's an excellent question. I think that there's a, a very thorough filtering process. Our investable universe is composed only of 220 stocks. So it's a very, very select club of companies. Um, so what we look for is companies that have a, a high degree of uh, financial productivity. Mm -hmm. um, so we want companies with high returns or very regulated return. Think about the national grid in the UK. It's a monopoly. It has good returns, but not 25 or 30% returns. So we want high return capital or regulated returns. And then we want um, companies that have exhibited this consistency in profitability over time, even in, in the tougher economic environment. And what we think that will provide is uh, a range of companies that will really help us defend capital as well. So not 
um, compromising on the upside capture. And indeed, our upside capture has been um, slightly above 100% since we started, um, but really protecting capital on, on the way down as we saw um, in 2022. Um, so that's the first filter. And then we go much deeper in understanding individual securities characteristics. Um, where's the length of the product cycle? How big are they versus their competitors, which means are they able to generate economies of scales that their competitors might not be able to? Um, do they have barriers to entry? Is it easy to step into their markets or challenges uh, in terms of risk of substitution? I think it's very important uh, as a value investors that we are um, aware that the world can change mm -hmm. and um, innovation um, can introduce risk of substitution. And, and I think the, the best or one of the best examples is, you know, you may have owned a lot of very, very cheap newspaper businesses in the 1990s because the trapdoor was opening under their feet. You know, the transition mm -hmm. to online was fundamentally changing and, and posing a huge challenge to their operations and business. So that's what we want to identify. Um, and, and that grinds down a, a to a universe of 220 stocks. Okay. Now to your question on stocks versus sector, I think we want to understand if uh, an industry is healthy in terms of um, you know, the barriers, can a company sustain its strong um, franchise position uh, going forward? Uh, but then it all comes down to stock picking. Is a stock individually cheap uh, or, um, or expensive? Just turning back then, obviously at the moment in the market, we've got sort of, on the one shoulder, inflation worrying people. On the other shoulder, regular the threat of recession worrying people. Behaviours and sort of worries about emotion are sort of coming into the market a lot more. You obviously have behavioural filters that are used in the process. How does that help you to manage the fund efficiently? Yes, it's it's a it's a very good point. I think um, emotion is uh, a big enemy of investors. Uh, I think you uh, were, were the last thing you you want when um, you you're entrusted with people's money is to have knee jerk reactions, um, and having a very strong emphasis on analysis is is crucial, and a, and a discipline around valuation is important. So the way we build the portfolio after setting up all this filter, we have a set of uh, really interesting companies, those franchise businesses, 220. And the premise is very simple. We would be very happy to invest in any of those businesses, provided valuation were compelling. Okay. So the members of the team, we all do individual stock analysis. We challenge each other on our analysis, on our view of um, evaluation. And um, the way we approach the forecasting and valuation of our companies really relies on two principles. First is being conservative. So to your point on um, you know, inflation and risk of recession, uh, what we do is you know, we're not claiming we're the best and the most accurate uh, economist around, but we want to be on the safe side of conservatism. So we will always adopt uh, an economic scenario in our forecast that sees that, yes, inflation will be a challenge on margins, even for our businesses. And we do think they have much better pricing power than most businesses. So they will um, they will protect much better against inflation spikes, uh, but they can't be immune. To be to be very uh, very honest, so on on the one hand, the set of uh, conservatism in the operating assumptions, and on the other end, in the valuation, a set of discount factor that always assumes um, normalization in interest rates. Believe me, uh, 
about 15 year, uh, 15 months ago we felt very very alone uh, in assuming that you know interest rate would as they did in the past uh, you know converge to a level that was consistent with long term gdp growth long term inflation we suggested that you know investors should discount cash flows at a much higher discount rate than they were used to over the previous 10 years and i think this two bit um you know creates a, a high degree of conservatism now the way we remove the emotion when we build a portfolio is we take this intrinsic value that is built conservatively, we compare it to the share price, and for every single stock we rank, the companies in order of um, valuation appeal. So the bigger the gap between our view of intrinsic value and the share price, the bigger the position we want to have in the portfolio. And what that means is a lot of these very good companies, they will be expensive, we simply have to be patient. Given, given you mentioned that, then obviously, I think we we talked at the start of the year, and you, you mentioned that turnover of the portfolio was was higher due to sort of increased opportunities. Could you maybe just sort of you know go into why that was such an interesting period for you? You've just mentioned there the, dis, the, the discrepancy between what you see as fair value and what the stock actually was. Maybe just talk us through that, and ha, is that still the same case today, a few months on? Yes. Um, and you're right. We've seen um, a heightened level of uh, volatility and a greater dispersion in stock price performance between winners and losers. And that gave us opportunities. And one of the important elements is every time we invest in a stock, we, we are prepared um, to give time for the investment case to come to fruition. However, if a stock re-rates 25 or 30% within three months, well, the investment proposition is genuinely different. Not much may have happened from a, a earnings forecast uh, expectation, but you know, things are genuinely more expensive. And we've seen a number of examples. I think Ross Stores uh, is a good example of that. This is a stock um, which we bought in the first quarter uh, 2022. So Ross Store is one of the um, heavy discounters in the US. Um, mm-hmm. We did uh, buy, you know, very much like TGX, the owner of TK Maxx. And uh, Rostol uh, became um, inexpensive because the market was very worried about uh, the inventories across the retail chain in the US. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity arose because the market put Rostols in the same bucket as the other retailers, while they misunderstood the business model. Rostols uh, strives when it is able to buy inventory cheaply from those people who have too much inventory on their hands. Mm-hmm. So perfect situation here. So they could buy lots of inventory really cheaply. And they strive as well, I'm afraid, when people struggle. You know, they a lot of people trade down because of the cost of living crisis. So for this company, you had what was almost a perfect storm. Um, they could buy inventory cheaper and sell it to a, a larger audience because people were trading down. And so this is a stock that subsequently performed well and we sold in, in, in the fourth quarter. So hence heightened rotation. Uh, more recently, we've continued to have this. Most of the rotation of the portfolio has been uh, in adjusting existing uh, portfolio positions rather than outright buys and sells. So we only had one sell in the first quarter uh, this year. How does it work in a period like COVID where perhaps you have a number of companies in the portfolio where you believe in the long-term story, but then over here, you've got this list of 220 and you're like, oh my God, so many of them look so attractive. How do we balance this out? Yes. Well, what's interesting really is through COVID, um, we never had a, a picture of a value ranking of stocks that suggested that the market had capitulated. Yeah. Um, so in, in our view, we were never in the March 2009 
um, you know, a case where you know a lot of stocks seems really, really uh, inexpensive. Um, so what we did is the challenge of COVID was um, really forcing us to go back to the fundamentals of our companies. Some of our companies that traditionally are, you know, extremely steady. We are disrupted. So if I take Medtronic, for example, they're the largest uh, manufacturer of medical equipment in the world, where half the product they sell are linked to elective surgery. So, you know, somebody was told, I'm sorry, you can't have your new knee or your new hip because, you know, obviously um, we, we, we have, you know, a bigger problem, uh, but that had direct consequence on a business that usually is extremely steady. So we had to go back for a number of those businesses um, to a deep understanding of the fundamentals, trying to see if those businesses were uh, impaired for the long run, or um, you know, if we had to weather the storm, assess whether the operating leverage they suffered from on the way down uh, would benefit us on the way back up. And potentially, um, with the emergency that they were in, being forced to um, rationalization, cost-cutting that would actually make them significantly more profitable once the situation normalized and pre-COVID. And, and that's what we saw um, of, of those businesses. We've sort of talked a lot about the company specifics and the fundamentals behind the companies. And how much does sort of top down come into the process in terms of macro? Obviously, we've got inflation, it's looming and continues to loom and be sticky in markets. Does that affect at all the long-term positioning in your portfolios? Do you do anything differently as a result of that sort of hanging down please in markets? Yes. Uh, it, it's a good question. So the uh, the approach we have is we do um, build a portfolio uh, on a bottom-up standpoint. We, we are stock pickers. You know, however, when we value uh, and we forecast the cash flows and earnings of our companies, you know, we have to be um, very aware of what's happening from, on the macro side. Um, so what we do is we have a, a, a five-year explicit forecast period that um, is trying to be as conservative as possible. So one of the things that uh, and work we've done um, in, in the last year, especially second half of the year, is uh, trying to assess whether the different monetary policies um, put in place during COVID hadn't created some sort of reservoir of inflation, you know, a, a quantity theory of money um, type approach. Um, because even outside the community um, pressures, we could actually see a sustained pressure on inflation because of all this money that was printed. And that's what we've adopted um, in our forecast. And, and some companies will be clear beneficiaries from inflation. United Utilities or National Grid are two of those. Um, and th some companies um, will tend to suffer more in a recessionary and inflationary environment. So Intel, for example, is a stock we sold uh, at the back end of last year because uh, we felt it was less equipped to to weather this, this storm. So, but it all goes back to the individual stocks, but we, we certainly take um, you know, the context into account um, with a view of being conservative and on, on the right side of, uh, of this conservatism. Okay, and, and just lastly, I mean, we we link that sort of following on from inflation. I think I believe there's a few sectors you try to steer clear of, the likes of financials, banks, and real estate. Obviously, I mean, that might be because the money's not as sticky there, I assume. But it, could you maybe explain why? And on on the back of that, how does that affect? How does that does that change at all when perhaps value investing is more popular? Or what if there is a a complete anomaly in one of those sectors? Would you bend those rules to include that anomaly in a portfolio if you felt the the case was that compelling. 
Yes, it, it is a, a very, um, it, it's, it's an excellent question because we, we certainly describe ourselves as value investors. Um, we, we want to buy stocks at a discount to their intrinsic value, uh, but we are not uh, value investors in, a, in an index sense. Uh, when we look for these franchise companies, you know, let's say bank, well, banks have low returns very, very high degree of financial leverage. And as we've seen, you know, recently, I'm afraid very low switching costs. So if people want their money back, well, they go and um, elsewhere. And if they can't get their money back, then the bank has a bigger problem, uh, as, as again, as, we, as we've seen. Uh, so for us, you know, we've never invested in banks, for example, because they were structurally unappealing as businesses. Again, if we're looking for those very forecastable, very high return businesses, they'd they don't fit the, the situation. I was going to say, even if it's something like sentiment where, you know, a bank, banks in Europe and the UK, for example, are like quite heavily regulated now, lots of capital input. No. Even that wouldn't come into the consideration now if, say, an event caused them to depreciate purely based on sentiment. Yes, no, it's, it's a good point. And if you um, look at the pattern of performance we've had, uh, you know, our performance was very strong in the first half of last year, despite the fact that we didn't own any of those big, uh, value sectors, no banks, uh, no commodities, no oil and gas. Um, and, and I think that really um, speak to the, 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 the fact that this is a strategy that has outperformed uh, value indices um, you know, uh, very consistently, um, despite the fact that it doesn't own um, you know, those value, uh, you know, classic value sectors. The, the advantage of the approach we have, I think, is really not compromising on the upside. So we've been able to uh, not only outperform value indices, but in the long run, even outperform gross indices. So we, we haven't, um, if you think at the, about the pattern of performance, good upside capture will certainly uh, miss out if the market, uh, you know, becomes uh, overly enthusiastic. You know, this last leg of, you know, super sharply rising markets, most likely we will, um, you know, participate, but we would probably expect to lag, uh, but we would have these defensive characteristics. So it is quite a nice mix, actually, for long-term uh, value creation of for portfolio. And Bertrand, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Chris. Run by a four-strong team located in London, Sydney, and New York, Lazar Global Equity Franchise looks for companies that have an edge in their respective business sectors, as explained in this episode. The managers can invest in any business around the world, but because they're looking for industry leaders, there is a natural bias towards larger size companies. For more information on the Lazard Global Equity Franchise, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Caliber's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Caliber's research team only. Mm -hmm.